the fullness of time. Now, this comes from Galatians chapter 4. And we're going to talk about time and reference time. I'm not particularly good with time, but I gathered from the, 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 the many who rolled in at a variety of different times here this morning that perhaps many of you are not all that good at time either. Just, just saying, that's all, just maybe. And by the way, I do always like to announce when we get to this time of the year that church will be open between Christmas and Easter this year. Just so, you know, just so you know, that's all. Getting, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm getting nasty here this morning, huh? <clears throat> in, <clears throat> excuse me, in Jonathan Swift's book, famous book, Gulliver's Travels, which was written almost 300 years ago, the main character, Gulliver, finds himself on an, inhabit, on an island inhabited by these people called Lilliputians, these little six-inch tall men. Notice that Gulliver seldom does anything without first consulting his watch. To them, they figured that his watch must be like, kind of like Gulliver's God because it pointed out or it seemed to direct every action, every movement of his life. I wonder if you can relate to that kind of thing. That you're, you're kind of the kind of person that is constantly mindful of the next deadline, the next appointment, the next meeting, the next thing that is coming up, and you find that the, the passage of time or the, the need to be attentive to time is um, important for you. It's funny because uh, <clears throat> a little later on, we're going to have a little testimony uh, about some things, but my oncologist, okay, uh, is so time, he is so punctual. Now, for doctors, that's amazing right? Because you go to a doctor's office, and you can sit there, and it's, as, and it's as if, like, your time is irrelevant. It doesn't matter how much. I see all these hands going, you bet. You preach it, Pastor Steve, right? But there, it's, it's as if your time has no meaning, um, and, and they'll just pick you up whenever it works for them. Uh, but this, this uh, oncologist that I have is so punctual that it's like, you better be there on time. And if he happens to come out and he's five minutes behind the time that he made the appointment, he is apologetic. So he's extremely, so if you ever ha, need, have need of, a, of a, an oncologist, God forbid, okay, come and talk to me and I'll give you some direction to uh, meet with Dr. Gallinson. Great guy. Anyway, <clears throat> excuse me, watches and timepieces and things that remind us of what time it is. Um, are, are a good thing to have, but they, re, they are reminders of the kind of control that time has over us. They force us to do what we know that we have to do, but don't, aren't always inclined to do, to pay attention to what time it is. The Bible itself instructs us, this is found in the, uh, the book of Ephesians where we were um, over the last number of months <clears throat> in the fourth chapter, to redeem the time. Okay, what does that mean? To redeem the time. To redeem something means to, to get it back, to buy it back. And the reason why we are told to buy it back is because we are usually so inclined to squander it and just waste it. And so he is saying, redeem the time or buy the time back or rescue the time because time is the one thing that you just can't get any more of, right? There is just no additional time that you can get. So it's important that we pay attention to the time. And this is especially true now as we approach Christmas time. There are so many different things that our, that our hours are filled with, shopping and planning and activities and programs and rehearsals and dinners and all of this stuff. <sighs> And it's kind of enough to wear you out. 
right, this whole season. It's kind of the downside of the Christmas season because by the time Christmas is done, you can kind of be in that place where you're so burnt, so worn out, it's like, good, that's over. And and I hope to be able to be a source of encouragement not to let that characterize our Christmas season. Time is a tyrant. You only have so much of it, you have to use it, or you lose it, if we're not careful about our time, it can overwhelm us. So although our message today is about time, it isn't particularly going to be about how we ourselves use time or waste time or invest time or all of that. So you can kind of relax. We're not going to beat up on anybody here this morning. The message is about how God is above time, how he uses time to fulfill his eternal purposes. Now, here's what Paul says in that passage that I referenced up there before in Galatians chapter 4. Here's the actual text of that, uh, of that reference there. It says, but when the fullness of time had come, we're going to focus on that thought. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons, when the fullness of time had come. Let's take a minute and just uh, look to the Lord. Let's ask him to open our hearts, open our minds, so that we'll be real receptive to whatever it is that he has to share with us this morning. Shall we? Yes, we shall. Lord, we have already had some time and some opportunity to direct our thoughts via the music that we've enjoyed and shared. We've had opportunity and time to be able to get our thoughts kind of moving in your direction. And we thank you for that. We thank you for what a worship service like this is all about, an opportunity. Life is so distracting and and so often has so little to do with the reality of who you are. And and it it so takes us away from that sense of cognizance of of your presence in our life that it's great that this this time is set aside so that we can just be reminded of what is most important here in this world. So as we now get into your word, we pray this morning that you will allow us to be attentive in our hearts, open, attentive in our minds, open in our hearts, open in our spirit to receive and hear what you, Holy Spirit, have to say through the sharing, teaching, preaching of your word. So lead us, we pray this morning, Lord, and just uh, reveal unto us things that we need to know. We are going to trust, Holy Spirit, that you're the, you're the person who is really doing the ministry here this morning, because it's only you that can take truth and cause it to penetrate down to the innermost part of our being. So we, we just yield this time over, we yield our minds, we yield our thoughts over to you, Lord God, and we pray that you will teach and instruct us and direct us, convict us, rebuke us, exhort us, whatever it is that we happen to need this morning, and we'll give you thanks for the re- the good fruit that will be born, because we pray this now in Jesus' name and all of God's people enthusiastically said, all right, there we go. Now, the fullness of time in that uh, passage there is an amazing little phrase. It speaks of how God is working out his sovereign purposes throughout history. There is an exquisite perfection to everything that God has made. Last week, we were talking about an atom. 
and the nucleus of the atom and the electrons that whirl at various different orbital levels around the outside. And it, it is just made exquisitely beautiful, although it cannot be seen and will never be seen because of its incredible smallness. Yet it's, the whole order of the thing is amazing, and it is the bedrock or the, build most, the building block of all the natural world. Um, if, if you were, if maybe you'll recall, you probably uh, did a biology lab at some point in high school, and you, and as a starting point in terms of the labs, you might have looked at a leaf under a microscope. And when you look at a leaf under a microscope, and, it, and then you begin to see all of the exquisite beauty that is revealed there as you just peer, I mean, it's a leaf, but then you look at it, and you go down into the cell and you see the parts of the cell and how all these parts are working together. And it is really just, it's exquisite. It's extraordinary, the perfection. And everything that God has made is like that. Anything that man has made is imperfect. And the more closely you look at it, the more you'll see the imperfections. If you take anything, the most perfectly made type of instrument or something like that, put it under an electron microscope, you will see that it has flaws somewhere. Actually, I'm told that Amish craftsmen, after they have made a piece of furniture, the best that they can make it, take a, a, a knife or something and deliberately nick it because they want it to be clear that this is a man-made thing. Not, in other words, we're not trying to be God. We want to do things as perfectly as we can, but there's a radical difference between the things that man makes and the things that God has made, right? And, and when we think of like the atom, we think of the microcosm, the smallest possible stuff. But then you go to something like the solar system. And there in the solar system, you have this incredible movement that is going on with, with an exactness, with a precision that is just mind-boggling. Someone could sit down today and tell you, based upon the movements of the planets in the solar system, when there is going to be a total solar eclipse, let's say 500 or 1,000 years from now, and exactly what part of the world is going to see it. Because everything is moving with exact order. Because everything that God has made reveals an exquisite precision. This is especially true, however, now we're talking about all these physical things that God has made, but this is especially true when it comes to the most important thing that God has ever done, the most important thing that has ever happened. This passage of Scripture that we're looking at here this morning points to the incredible fact that Jesus came into the world at just exactly the right instant of time. He wasn't too early, he wasn't too late, he was right on time, because this was the fullness of time. Last week I was kind of going through that old uh, spiritual song, you can't hurry God, you just got to wait. You got to trust him and give him some time, no matter how long it takes. He's the God that you can't hurry, he'll be there, don't you worry. He may not come when you want him, but he always comes right on time. And so this passage here this morning is kind of emphasizing this truth that, that God is doing things exactly and precisely according to the perfect timetable that, um, that he has in terms of the plan of the world. Um, so how is it or why is it that the time when Jesus was born, that first Christmas, how is it that Paul defines this or understands this? How did he come to identify this as the fullness of time? Why did God the Father... Send God the Son just exactly at the time that he did. To understand this, we're going to have to review just a little history 
that shows how and why Jesus came at exactly the perfect time. Our history lesson starts in the 4th century B.C. with an extraordinary young general king who arose from the land of Greece. He took the throne at age 20. His coming had been foretold by Daniel the prophet 200 years before he came, although I'm quite certain that he didn't know that. But God knew that he was coming, and he was, fit, he was actually in the picture. It's one of the most amazing, Daniel is one of the most amazing books of the Bible. It is kind of like the Old Testament book of Revelation. And it, in it, Daniel correctly and accurately prophesies the kingdoms that will be coming and the rulers who will rule over those kingdoms right on down from starting with Babylon, Medo-Persia, the Greeks, the Romans, and then ultimately some final kingdom that will rule over the entire world. But it is, it is brought with exquisite perfection, and it's, it's so exact that liberals can't accept it. They say this, had to be, this had to have been written during the intertestament, uh, intertestamental period of time because it's just too right. It's just too exact. That's the, uh, the unbelieving mind for you. Now, the person that we're talking about took the throne at age 20, and by the time he was 30 years old, he had conquered the then known world. Of course, I'm talking about Alexander the Great, who died very young, 33 years of age, and I'm told that after his, after his 30th birthday, he sat down and wept because there just weren't any more worlds to conquer. Rats. <laughs> Alexander the Great. Now, now, the Greeks believed that their culture was superior to all other cultures. The movement of the, of the, the fact that the Greeks had conquered the rest of the known world and then had imposed their culture upon these various different people groups that they had conquered is um, defined in, in history as the Hellenization of these people. And so the Greek culture was spread all over the world. They were the original, I'll take it, now let's go all the way back to January of this year. They were the original cultural hegemonists. You remember that term? Right? This is, this is coming from the, uh, the cultural Marxism uh, messages that we gave. Cultural hegemony, this fact that one group is always oppressing. One group is always trying to put down another group. The entire narrative of human history is built upon the, the, uh, the, 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 the whole thing of oppression. Okay, This is what we see uh, so much in critical theory. It is, it is the heart of what critical theory is all about. So they were the original cultural hegemonists of their day. They were suppressing subjugated peoples, and they were imposing Greek culture upon the peoples that they had conquered. Because Alexander the Great conquered the nations of his time, the Greek language became the common language of the world. No matter where you went, Spain, Egypt, Italy, Turkey, there were people there who understood and spoke Greek because of the conquer, the, the fact that Alexander had united the world and had superimposed the Greek language on the world. The existence of a common language enabled businesses to flourish and allowed cultures to interact. As a result of Alexander's conquests, when Jesus came into the world, he entered a world that shared a common language. After Christ's death and his resurrection, the Gospels, which were written in what is called koine, or common Greek. There are actually two different Greeks. There is the High Greek or the Classical Greek, the Greek of 
Homer and the Iliad and the Odyssey and the philosophers. So it is, it's, the, it's the, the, the high form of the language. And then there is the common form of the language, which was known as Koine. The Gospels were written in Koine Greek, and they were taken all over the known world. So when the gospel was taken to Spain, or when the gospel was taken to Egypt, or when the gospel was taken to Turkey, or when the gospel was taken anywhere, and particularly if the gospel was taken to Greece, the people there would be able to understand the word, and the word could then take root, and could grow in them, and could prosper, and could, could cause them to grow in, into maturity, into Christ, because this one book could be written in one language, and it could be understood all over the known world. This explains why the New Testament was written in Greek, and then also why the Old Testament, a little later on, was also translated into Greek. The Old Testament translated into Greek is something that's known as the Septuagint. You may have seen that word pop up from time to time, but Greek had become so dominant of a language that the, <clears throat> the, uh, the Jews had actually taken the Old Testament scriptures and then translated them into Greek. So by divine providence, God used Alexander's conquests to prepare the nations to be able to hear the message of the Savior's birth in one common language. This was amazing providence. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. After all, God was preparing the world for the most important event that was ever going to happen, the most important event that has ever happened in human history. God was and, and, and through Alexander the Great, although he had, I'm, I would imagine, not the slightest inkling of what was going on, he was actually preparing the world to hear it. Why? Because the fullness of time was coming. He had to get everybody ready. <clears throat> After Alexander's death in 323 BC, his empire began to crumble. Wars and conflicts had broken out everywhere in his empire. But then in 63 BC, a new world-dominating power arose. Of course, that empire was Rome. With the coming of this new empire, taxation and uh, taxation was necessary, and so a number of different censuses had to be done among the people that now were um, ruled over by, the, uh, by, by Rome. The second chapter of Luke's gospel records exactly one of these events. So let's take a look at that. It says, In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. So it was this very census that was called by Caesar Augustus that brought Joseph and Mary to their ancestral town, the place where the Savior was to be born, this little, seemingly inconsequential Judean town of Bethlehem. Why is that so important? Well, something extremely significant had been revealed eight centuries prior to this to a prophet whose name was Micah. God had revealed to Micah something about the coming or the birth of Messiah who was coming into the world. This is what he wrote down. Oh, we're okay. 
He, he wrote down, but you, O Bethlehem, Ephratah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth to me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. You may remember that when the Magi show up and they first go to Jerusalem because they, they want to know They've been following the star, but now they're looking for a little more precise information. And so they ask the scribes and the Pharisees, where is the child to be born who is to be the king of Israel? That perks up Herod's ears quick. And so they say, well, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. How do they know this? Because they studied Micah. And they know that Micah prophetically, to Micah prophetically was revealed by the Spirit this important information about the birthplace of Jesus Christ. Now, this is a very important thing because in order to be Messiah, Jesus has to have a particular pedigree. He must be of the house, lineage, and tribe of David. If you go through the genealogy that's given in Luke and if you go through the genealogy that's given in Matthew, you find that that's exactly what you discover, that the, the, the line of Jesus, although Joseph is not his father, nevertheless, Joseph's line goes all the way back to the house of David, and Mary's line goes all the way back up to the house of David, and his, pe his pedigree is exact. It's important because, um, he, because he must be a, a descendant of David because God had made a covenant with David. David was, as you know, or Scripture uh, refers to him as a man after God's own heart. Right? David loved the Lord, but he also had made a lot of mistakes in his life, and he also was a, a, a man of war and bloodshed. And though he had this deep, deep desire to want to build a place for God to dwell, you know, God, they had brought up the Ark of the Covenant, but the Ark of the Covenant was covered over by a tent, and it was kind of shabby, I suppose. Of course, and at this point, it's 500 years old. So it's probably like looking 500 years old, presumably. And, so, and David... David, he actually knows, he says, it's, it's, it's not right that I'm living in a house that's made with cedars and the, the Lord is living in a tent. So he has this deep burning desire to want to build a house for God. Um, but God is not going to permit it. And God tells him through his, his seer or through his, his spiritual, guide, uh, spiritual counselor, Nathan, that God is not going to permit David himself to be the one who builds the house. He's going, to be, he's going to permit David to gather all the materials, but it's going to be David's son who is going to build the house. But while David is pondering and thinking about building a house and making plans to build the house, God sends Nathan back to see David. And he says to David, are you going to build the house for me? I'm going to build a house for you. And he says, it's, there is never going to be a time Never going to be a time when one of your descendants will not be seated upon the throne of Israel. This was God's promise. In other words, he was giving, he was making a covenant with David, placing him in this, in this very important chain, this link of people that would ultimately be the ancestors of Messiah. And Jesus and, and the Messiah himself would ultimately be the king that would be seated upon the throne. Now the Davidic priesthood came to an end slightly after the people returned from Babylon after captivity. So we're talking maybe sometime in the fifth century BC. There are no more David, Davidic kings. By the time we get to the story of Jesus and the whole New Testament story of the birth of Jesus, the, the person who's referred to as the king is Herod. And Herod is an Idumean. He's not even a true Jew. 
And, and he certainly is not beloved by any Jews, and he is definitely not a, a descendant of David. So what's happened here to this line of David? It would look like these important covenant promises had failed. But you'll note if you're reading through the gospel that there are people who are saying to Jesus as he goes by, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Because they know that Messiah has to be of the pedigree, of the line, of the house of David. So anyway, I mean, this is all like sidebar information, but it's all interesting to me, I'm presuming to you, because it is adding texture and depth to the reality of this story, that this story is just not some isolated little myth that pops up out of somewhere, but it is deeply, integrally connected with every other thing in Scripture. That's what makes Scripture so unbelievably rich and powerful. The more you look into it, the more you will, uh, you'll, you'll notice that. So all of this is happening. All these factors are in play. The house and lineage of David, the fact that David is from Bethlehem, that Joseph is of that line, that Mary is of that line, that they have to go now uh, because they're, they're being summoned by Caesar Augustus because this time, and, and it just so happens that Mary happens to be pregnant right about now, and she's pregnant right about at the time that she's going to give birth. All of this is mind-boggling, isn't it? And so up they go, and they get to Bethlehem, and while she's there, the time comes for her to give birth to her child. Now, here's, here's the, um, just one of the amazing little thoughts. Caesar Augustus had no clue when he was thinking and deliberating one day in his palace, and the idea came into his mind, you know, I need to, I need to call a census, man. I need, to, I need to register all these people because we're going to have to tax all these people. So he, he puts out this big plan and this big program, and he's got big purposes for all this kind of stuff. And little does he know that he's just being a pawn in the gigantic, divine, sovereignly controlled purpose and plan of God because his little taxation and his little census that he's going to call is actually going to cause the Scripture the word of God that cannot fail, that never fails, that is always exact, that is always true, and is always running on time, it is going to cause it to be fulfilled with perfection. In perfection. I mean, isn't it amazing that all these little pieces, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a virgin, born under the law. Okay, now, back to the, uh, back to the empire of Rome. With Rome now in full control of world power, the Pax Romana was established. The Pax Romana, of course, I'm, I'm presuming most of you know this, but the Peace of Rome. The Peace of Rome was a time when law and order ruled the land because the Romans were, uh, could make, you didn't want to make trouble for the Romans. And so people tended to not make trouble because the Romans were in charge and the Romans were in control all over the known world. And so law and order ruled the land. Travel was generally easy and safe. Never before and never after had this part of the world enjoyed such an extended period of peace. The Pax Romana enabled the apostles to travel freely throughout the world for the purpose of spreading the gospel. And they did so on this vast network of Roman roads that Caesar had provided. You've certainly heard the expression, all roads lead to Rome. Well, that's because the Romans in, industrially, you know, or um, 
built all of these roads because they wanted to be able to govern over their entire um, area that they were controlling, which at that time was all of the known world. So this gave the disciples easy access to all the corners of the Roman Empire. Because of the Pax Romana, Jesus was able to accomplish so much in his three, three short years of ministry because there were roads going everywhere. His disciples could soon start new churches all over the Roman Empire. This was all because the Heavenly Father used Rome's achievements for the purpose of spreading the gospel. Isn't that amazing? God was getting everything ready. God was getting it all ready hundreds of years before any of it ever came to be. It wasn't like, you know, God uh, thought, shoot, I just don't have enough time. Jesus is coming and we got to get some roads built here, right? Everything with, with split second accuracy, with perfection, with precision is all being worked out. Why? Because in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son and God knows that it's all coming. But wait, there's more. Six centuries before Christ, Judah and Jerusalem were destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. Many of the Jews were taken prisoner and brought to Babylon as captives. If you read the story of Daniel or the book of Daniel, you'll learn all about that, that Daniel was one of the young people, and the Babylonians wanted to take all the choice young people of the people groups that they had subjugated and bring them back to, back to Babylon and teach them the way, the, the, the way and the philosophy and the medicine and the learning of their particular culture. And so they brought Daniel back. Many of the rest of God's people, who were not taken as captives and deported and brought back to Babylon, were scattered all over the known world. These Jews that now were scattered were no longer in Israel. And, and it, has to be, it has to be noted that for, Jew, for the Jews, the temple is essential to their entire worship system. No temple, no worship, because everything that has to happen has to happen there. It can't just happen anywhere. And, of course, the temple being at Jerusalem, once they are all over, dispersed all over the known world, they don't have ready access to the um, uh, to the temple. And that, just another little sidebar thing that just kind of popped into mind. But when you have the Holy Spirit being poured out in Acts chapter 2, and it says, and there were Jews from Parthia, Media, Phrygia, Pamphylia, and all these other, uh, other parts of the world, right? There were, they were all in town because they were all in town for the purpose of celebrating the Passover. And what does God do? He pours out the Holy Spirit. And, and then these disciples come out and they're speaking with other tongues. They're speaking the language of all these strangers that are in town. And all these people are going like, what's going on here? These, how is it that these guys, these, these are all Galileans. How is it they are speaking things that they're speaking in our language? Well, what God had done was drawn everybody back into town so that this, this event could happen at the precise time, right? On, in, on Pentecost, 50 days, um, you know, post-Passover, on that very day, and all this is going on, and guess what happens? They all hear it, they all are amazed by it, and they all go back boom, to all the places from which they came, and this story, it gets like some immediate attention, some uh, immediate news coverage all over the known world. Just more amazing aspects of the fact that God sovereignly governs over all the things, but everything is about the fulfillment of his purpose, right? We uh, read, you know, the verse of Scripture in Romans 8, 28, for God works all things together for good to those who love him and who are the called according to his purpose. 
God's not really very interested in my purpose. I don't think. As a matter of fact, I, I, my purpose is of no value and no account to God. And he's under no obligation to fulfill my purpose. And if I'm still living within the structure of my purpose, who I want to be, what my goals are, what my, all of that, if, if that's still the governing driving force in my life, I'm kind of like on my own. doesn't mean that God doesn't love me, but I'm just kind of, I'm on my own. I'm building my own little kingdom. But God will work all things together for good to those who love him and are, who are the called according to his purpose. Back to this story um, about the scattered Jews all over the known world. The Jews had to find a way to keep their faith alive. And it was at this time that they begin this, what, is, has, what comes to be known as the synagogue system. Here in the synagogues, the scriptures were read, and hope was kept alive for the coming of Messiah. The synagogues were the first places that Jesus and his disciples went to proclaim that Messiah had actually come. Um, it was in the synagogues that the gospel message was first proclaimed, and the synagogue itself became the model for the Christian church. Behind the scene, God was using the dispersions of the Jewish people, to, which, were, which were meant to destroy Israel, to actually spread the good news of the Savior of Israel to the entire world. To the average, obser to the average onlooker or observer, it looked like a catastrophe. But it was actually a preparation for the event that Paul defines here in the fourth chapter of Galatians as the fullness of time. There's an application for all this for us. The good news for us is that just like it was in days gone by, so it is today, God is in control. Somebody ought to say amen. Somebody did. Somebody else ought to say amen. God is in control of all things. Our faithful, loving God is the Lord of what the Bible calls times, chronos, and seasons, kairos. In Vine's Expository Dictionary of New Testament Words, he defines those two terms or those two concepts in this way. He says, broadly speaking, chronos expresses the duration of a period, okay? It, it talks about quantity. And kairos um, expresses, uh, kairos stresses it as marked by certain features. Thus, we read in Acts chapter 1 and verse 7. And now these are the last words of the Lord Jesus to his followers. Immediately after this, he ascends into heaven. It says, so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times, chronos, lengths of the periods, or seasons, kairos, epics characterized by certain events that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Kronos speaks of quantity. Kairos marks the quality. Uh, so he is saying, don't worry about it. Relax. It's not about what's going to happen on my timetable. You can't know. That. Actually, a very interesting thing is when they ask Jesus, when will the coming of the end be? He says, of that day and of that hour, no man knows, not even the Son of Man, which is a kind of a mind-boggling concept. But the Father himself alone has placed that event, that moment, under his own power. Therefore, that's why everybody who tries to get a date on this thing and kind of tries to figure out the end times and all this kind of stuff is always wrong. 
It's, it's a 100% um, score so far. Everybody is 100% wrong, which is why I, I know, but I'm not telling you, because I know as <laughs> soon as I tell you what God has showed me about, first of all, who the Antichrist is, and when he's coming and where he lives and what nationality, all that stuff, as soon as I tell you, God's going to change the plan. So anyway, here's another illustration. And notice, he is, he is really, in that last passage of Scripture, he is saying to them, mind your business. Here's your business. That's his business. This is your business. You are to be, I'm, you're going to be filled with power by my Holy Spirit, and you're going to be my witnesses. Boy, if we'd get that as a church, we would, we would be moving the gospel along so much more powerfully than we are right now. If we would just recognize the fact that God's got his business and I got my business and I need to get on with my business. If I get on with my business, I can be confident that God will take care of his. Amen, Pastor Steve. Here's another one. This, this one is even more specifically and directly to this same concept. Paul is writing and he's talking to the people of Thessalonica. Thessalonica, and he, because um, they're concerned about when is, when is Jesus coming, or what's the end of times, or how's this all going to play out? Notice what he says. Now, concerning the times, Kronos, and the seasons, Kairos, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them. As labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. I got my business. He's got his business, right? And my business is to walk in the light that God has given me. That's what I'm supposed to be doing. The, the lesson in all of this, it is not necessary, although it may be very interesting to bother and stress out <clears throat> about specifics of persons and situations and durations of time and all this stuff that pertains to the end of times. Right? It is not helpful to bother and stress about all of these different things. What we need to focus on is that we are walking in the light that God has given us thus far, and all the other things will take care of themselves. If you are walking in the light as he is in the light, when Jesus comes, you're going to be ready. And that's what matters. If you're sitting at home stressing out, worrying about who the Antichrist is and when he's going to come and what the time frame is going to be and what nationality is he in all like I said, I know it's interesting. It is, and I'm not saying I'm not saying that it should be forbidden, and no, nobody, uh, you know, it's interesting. There's books to be read and stuff like that, but it, it shouldn't be a matter. It's, it definitely shouldn't be a matter of something that we get worked up about, and it definitely shouldn't be a matter of something that we would argue about, because in reality, nobody really has a clue on this whole thing. Only God. So all of these things will take care of themselves. They are well within the already calculated scope of the one who sovereignly established and controls things in the fullness of time. What we need to remember is this. History is his story. Our times are in his almighty hands. You can be comforted that God is in control of whatever now you may be facing in your life. If your heavenly father can use the kingdoms and events of world history to accomplish his purposes, surely he can use the events and people in your life to take care of you. 
and to accomplish his will for you. We have a mighty and a loving God. Our times are in his hands. And even when our eyes cannot see it, in our spiritual lives, we can see that God takes care of us. His reign over us is for our good. Paul reminds us in Romans chapter 5 and verse 6 the following simple little thought. He says, again, concerning timing, while we were still weak, powerless, and, and, and when he says weak, the, the term that he's using means powerless to help ourselves. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. In Christ Jesus, Almighty God broke into time, and at the cross, he defeated sin, he defeated, he defeated death, he defeated hell, he defeated the devil, and he did all this for us when we were powerless to be able to help ourselves. He did all this without one word of request. Not, nobody asked him because it was part of his plan. We who by nature have no time for God, we who are so busy and so consumed with time, we who time and time again rebel against him, we who are by nature, if you recall that phrase that's given in Ephesians chapter, four, chapter 2, who are by nature children of wrath, receive his love, his care, his sovereign guidance, and his control, if in fact we defer it over to him. And that's really the key. As long, I, I, I know I've said it a million times here, but I remember when, when the Lord came into my life, this was back in 1978, and, uh, and the Lord had brought us to church. I went to church with Lorraine. We weren't uh, married at that particular point. And walked back into church, and, um, and they're singing this little song, learning to lean, learning to lean, I'm learning to lean on Jesus, finding more power, the little, little, little chorus type of a ditty. And I could, it was as if the Lord was just speaking right to my heart. I'm in this little... We're in this little Pentecostal church. We are so um, out of the, the, the culture of that church, you can't believe it. These are all like super conservative. Most of these people are old people. I walk in with hair down to about here, and, uh, you know, and I just don't look like I fit in this particular place. But God met me there in this powerful way. And it was as if he said, and I can still kind of like, I, I always recall this, this kind of a sentence. It's like, look, this is how it works. You get in the passenger seat, I get in the driver's seat, and that's how we go forward from here. And that is the whole, that is the whole trick, if you will, to, to a successful and fruitful Christian life. Get in the passenger seat. Let Jesus get in the driver's seat, and don't tell him where to go. <laughs> You're wasting your time. Lord, 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 over there, over there, over there. Not doesn't work that way. He knows where he wants to go. He knows where he wants to take you. He knows the people that he wants you to meet. He knows the people that he wants you to interact with. He, he's got the whole plan all worked out. All you have to do is show up. We have a successful church here, and I thank God and praise, for, praise God for it all the time. I'm so blown away by what the Lord has built here and by the congregation that God has raised up, the friendships that I have with all of you. I'm so blessed by this whole thing. You know what I did to accomplish this? showed up. That's it. I didn't come here with some kind of a master plan. I'm, it, I just showed up. And I've been showing up for like 30 some odd years now. And God is continuing to build. God will, God will build the work that he wants to do in your life if you just simply show up, take care of your business, let him take care of his business. You be you 
He'll be God, and he'll be able to put things all right and in order. It might take a little while because we can make quite a mess out of things. It might take a little while.